I suppose I'd had a good deal of sex for my age, at any rate, devoted a good deal to it. Girls, or a certain kind of girl, liked me. I had a car, not so common among undergraduates in those days, and I had some money. I wasn't ugly, and even more important, I had my loneliness, which, as every cad knows, is a deadly weapon with women. My technique was to make a show of unpredictability, cynicism, and indifference. Then, like a conjurer with his white rabbit, I produced the solitary heart. I didn't collect conquests, but by the time I left Oxford, I was a dozen girls away from virginity. I found my sexual success and the apparently ephemeral nature of love equally pleasing. It was like being good at golf, but despising the game. One was covered all round, both when one played and when one didn't. I contrived most of my affairs in the vacations away from Oxford, since the new term meant that I could conveniently leave the scene of the crime. There were sometimes a few tedious weeks of letters, but I soon put the solitary heart away, assumed responsibility with my total being, and showed the Chesterfieldian mask instead. I became as neat at ending liaisons as at starting them. This sounds, and was, calculating, but it was caused less by a true coldness than by my dandyish belief in the importance of the lifestyle. I mistook the feeling of relief that dropping a girl always brought for a love of freedom. Perhaps the one thing in my favour was that I lied very little. I was always careful to make sure that the current victim knew before she took her clothes off the difference between coupling and marrying. But then, in S., things became complicated. I started to take the daughter of one of the older masters out. She was pretty in a stock English way, as province-hating as myself, and she seemed rather passionate, but I belatedly realised she was passionate for a purpose. I was to marry her. I began to be sick of the way a mere bodily need threatened to distort my life. There were even one or two evenings when I felt myself near surrendering to Janet, a fundamentally silly girl I knew I didn't love and would never love. Our parting scene, an infinitely sour all-night of nagging and weeping in the car beside the July sea, haunted me. Fortunately, I knew, and she knew I knew, that she was not pregnant. I came to London with the firm determination to stay away from women for a while. The Russell Square flat below the one I had rented had been empty through most of August, but then one Sunday I heard movements, doors slammed, and there was music. I passed a couple of uninteresting-looking girls on the stairs on the Monday, heard them talking, all their short A's flattened into ugly short A's as I went on down. They were Australians. Then came the evening of the day I had lunch with Miss Spencer Haig, a Friday. About six there was a knock on the door, and the stockier of the two girls I had seen was standing there. "'Oh, hi, I'm Margaret, from below,' I took her outstretched hand. "'Glad to know you. We're having ourselves a bottle party. Like to come along?' "'Oh, well, actually, it'll be noisy up here.' It was the usual thing, an invitation to kill complaint. I hesitated, 
then shrugged. All right. Thanks. Well, that's good. Eight? She began to go downstairs, but she called back. You have a girlfriend you'd like to bring? Not just now. We'll fix you up. Hi. And she was gone. I wished then that I hadn't accepted. So I went down when I could tell a lot of people had already arrived, when the ugly girls, they always arrive first, would, I hope, be disposed of. The door was open. I went in through a little hall and stood in the doorway of the living room, holding my bottle of Algerian burgundy, ready to present. I tried to discover in the crowded room one of the two girls I had seen before. Loud male Australian voices, a man in a kilt and several West Indians. It didn't look my sort of party, and I was within five seconds of slipping back out. Then someone arrived and stood in the hall behind me.